Well, good morning and welcome to Your DIY Health here on the Spreaker Radio Network and simulcasting on free conference call. And uh, we're still uh, not on uh, TFR right now because the uh, network is being rebuilt from the ground up and they're just running uh, replays right now, not doing any live shows. So uh, as soon as they uh, get things finished up, we'll be back over there. But for the time being, you can always find us here on Spreaker, on Jitsi, and uh, free conference call. And the information is on my website under the radio shows tab. So anyway, I am your host, Sergeant Jim Ram, retired. You can call me Sarge. It's Tuesday, May 2nd, 2023. And this program is meant to provide natural healing information only and is in no way meant to replace the advice of a competent medical professional, assuming you can find one. I search for and present to my listeners natural modalities that simply assist and augment the body's ability to heal itself. The body wants to fix itself. The body knows how to fix itself. It has a God-given innate ability to do so. The only thing that's missing is the raw materials. And when you put those back into the mix, stand back and wait to be amazed because your body's going to do some really cool stuff. Now you can visit my website at yourdiyhealth.com. That's Y-O-U-R-D-I-Y, like do-it-yourself, health, H-E-A-L-T-H, yourdiyhealth.com. There's all kinds of information there. All the products we talk about are there, including the iTeraCare device, which is featured prominently at the top of the homepage. And there's lots of information about that there as well. There's downloadable flyers and brochures. There's a uh, link to a YouTube playlist that has over 120 videos uh, that talk about the technology, how it's used, and how to... uh, get fantastic results like people the testimonials from people all over the world that are there are talking about uh just lots and lots and lots and lots of uh, healing there that uh and this thing is not a medical device it simply blows warm air with terahertz frequencies that bodies takes and uses to fix itself that's what it does works along the same line as our nutritional supplements do The supplements themselves do not cure anything. They don't fix anything. They simply give the body the raw materials it's designed to use to do its own repair. And that's what the terahertz frequencies do. They work on the same basic idea, just in a different manner. But those frequencies are the ones that the cells are designed to resonate when they're healthy. And basically, when you put those into your body, the cells take them, they resonate properly, they get rid of the bad stuff, and they uh, boost the good stuff. And that's why the body is, people all over the world have had results with virtually every kind of condition you can imagine. Everything from skin tags to cancer to the, um, you know, recovering from the negative effects of these COVID jabs. Uh, Because the body was designed to be self-healing, it simply needs the raw materials. The trouble is, is you can't get those on a normal, you know, a normal day through your diet and everything else. You have to augment with certain things. That's where the supplements, that's where the terahertz frequencies come in. And these are the only two things that I've seen so far that are a broad spectrum approach that assist the body in, in fixing itself from virtually anything you run into. Um, you know, short of having an arm severed, uh, that kind of thing. You're not going to grow a new arm. But um, when it comes to chronic health issues or detoxification things and that kind of stuff, these machines are just absolutely amazing. So I encourage you to check them out. And if you have any questions, you can hit the contact me button. And otherwise, uh, there is a dedicated link to the website that uh, is designed just for the, the terahertz waves, the iTeraCare devices. And there's more information there, more testimonials, as well as the link to make a purchase. 
And uh, I encourage you to do so because every household should have one, at least one of these, if not more. Mine has about six. <laughs> and I, I keep them on hand. I have spares just in case, all kinds of things. But um, it's, you know, you want at least one because with the un, uh, well, what's the word on, you know, um, unstable and unpredictable future that we've got in front of us, there's no telling when things that we usually use won't be there. Pharmacies, doctor's offices, those kind of things. And people call these things a dock in a box. It's absolutely amazing what uh, have, you know, there's, there's just, it's just wonderful. Um, I'm going to, I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to put a link to a um, Facebook uh, page that's designed specifically for testimonials. And the only thing I ask is when you go to make your purchase, come back to me because you're the one, I'm the one you heard it from, which is only fair. Anyway, and there's nobody on there that is allowed to sell. That's a, it's strictly for testimonials. Anybody caught trying to sell there or asking questions will be immediately kicked out. So um, anyway, come back to me and I'll help you out and uh, we'll get you going. So um, let's see here. Also, while you're on the website, be sure and hit the radio shows tab. And at the top of the page is the link to the archive page set up through castbox.fm. Um, there's over, it's almost 1,200 shows up there now, 1,100 and some, but we're getting there. And they're all shareable via email and social media, which we encourage you to do. And then if you scroll down a little further, you'll see the information of the shows we do, when they're on and how you listen. And I've been keeping that up to date because with the flux with TFR and all the different things going on, uh, Jitsi was on the Fritz for a while. We had to dump it and go to free conference call. Now that we've come back, Jitsi's starting to work again. Um, and some people like Jitsi, some people like free conference calls. So for the time being, I'm running them both side by side as well as uh, everything is, is streamed on Spreaker. All the shows I do, that's the, the home base. And um, not only can you listen to every live show there, but you can also listen to the replays of all the shows we've done since September 12th of last year. Um, there's a couple hundred of them up there at least. And um, they're downloadable there as well, which makes it handy. So uh, enjoy that. But uh, Spreaker is our home base at this point. That's where everything is uh, streamed from and lo and uh, and replayed and downloadable and everything. So uh, enjoy. And uh, but the only downside with uh, Spreaker is you don't have a call in, which I you know am going to give you here in just a minute. Um, but keep in mind the topics discussed and opinions mentioned on the show are those of the host and or guests and don't necessarily represent the opinions of the Spreaker Radio Network, Jitsi, or Free Conference Call or any of the alphabet agencies out there listening in. Nothing we say in this show should be construed as an attempt to diagnose, treat, or cure any kind of a health or wealth issue. It's all here for your education and entertainment purposes only, so that as a responsible adult, you can use this show as a jumping-off point to do your own research and due diligence to make sure that what you're doing and what you're trying is right for you. The number to call into the show, if you happen to be listening on Spreaker, is 614-499-2409. That's 614 614- 499-2409. One last time, 614-499-2409. And I'm just making sure that everything is set and ready to go. Yep. So the calls will come through. And uh, that's connected direct. That's my that's a second cell phone connected directly to my mixer. So it'll come in, play through, and all the good stuff. Oops. 
It reminds me, I got to turn that up. <laughs> oh, righty then. That's probably why the call didn't come through the other day. Shame on me. Anyway, no, that's the wrong one. All right, so we're good to go. Calls can, can be taken. And um, hope everybody had a good weekend. Um, was good for me. I had a great time. Had a potluck at church on Sunday. It was lots of fun and good food and all that good stuff. And um, a lot of craziness going on. But yesterday I discovered a new documentary, four parts, and it's called Covidism Contagious Deception. And the first part of it is about 53 minutes long, and I'm going to play it for you right now. I'm going to share it um, on both the uh, Spreaker and Jitsi screens. So if you're on one of those, you'll be able to see it. Um, let's see here, just getting those things set up, and we will be ready to roll here in just a second. All righty then. Here we go. And after that, I will come back and we'll see where we go from there. Who could have possibly imagined that the third decade of the 21st century would start like this? By the end of March 2020, most of our planet was in lockdown. The empty streets and closed businesses spoke of the unprecedented change to our otherwise vibrant lifestyle. The draconian measures implemented by governments around the globe triggered an economic meltdown to which the Great Depression paled in comparison. The livelihoods of millions of people were at stake, which could have potentially led to worldwide famine and social unrest of unimaginable proportions. However, we were told that this was the lesser of two evils. Our political leaders and their medical advisors had determined that only through lockdowns could we prevent COVID-19 from overwhelming medical systems around the world, killing millions of people in the process and threatening the very foundations of our civilization. Paralyzed with fear, we quickly accepted the implementation of the draconian measures in hopes of avoiding the horrifying scenario already unfolding in Italy. Amid the chaos and panic, Professor Walter Ricciardi, coordinator for the Italian Scientific Committee for COVID-19, came out with a shocking statement. The way in which we code deaths in our country is very generous, in the sense that all the people who die in hospitals with the coronavirus, are deemed to be dying from the coronavirus. On re-evaluation by the National Institute of Health, only 12% of death certificates have shown a direct causality from coronavirus. This statement resulted in a wave of public criticism by numerous medical experts, including Professor Sukert Bhakti, one of the most renowned microbiologists in the world. This violates a basic principle in medicine. It simply must be established that a patient dies because of, and not simply with, a virus. The simple and trivial presence of the virus must never ever qualify it to enter the register of COVID deaths. Robert Koch opened the door to modern medicine when he demonstrated that a specific disease, tuberculosis, had a specific cause, the bacterium. Scientifically based knowledge has continued to replace belief in medicine. Let us strive to follow the path of progress. The United States is yet another place where coding death certificates is done in a highly unscientific way. 
if someone dies with COVID-19, we are counting that as a COVID-19 death. If you were in hospice and had already been given, you know, a few weeks to live, and then you also were found to have COVID, that would be counted as a COVID death. It means that if, um, it technically, if even if you died of a clear alternate cause, but you had COVID at the same time, it's still listed as a COVID death. So um, everyone who's listed as a COVID death doesn't mean that that was the cause of the death, but they had COVID at the time of death. I hope that's helpful. Dr. Scott Jensen joins me now. Uh, doctor, I wanna read for our viewers what the CDC says in part about how to count COVID deaths relating to that last issue we just raised. In cases where a definite diagnosis of COVID cannot be made, but is suspected or likely, like the circumstances are compelling with a reasonable degree of certainty, it is acceptable to report COVID-19 on a death certificate as probable or presumed. So doctor, what's the problem with that? Well, in short, it's ridiculous. I spent some time earlier today just going through the CDC's manual on how to complete death certificates and part, the parts that were specifically written for physicians. And in that manual, it talks of precision and specificity, and that's what we were trained with. I mean, let's just take someone getting hit by a bus and they, they collapse along and they go into the emergency room and they're there for 15, 20 minutes. Blood work comes back. COVID test comes back positive and they die 20 minutes later because of their collapsed lung. We're gonna put that down as COVID-19? That doesn't make any sense. The determination of the cause of death is a big deal. It has impact on estate planning. It has impact on future generations. And the idea that we're going to allow people to massage and sort of game the numbers is a real issue because we're gonna undermine the trust and right now, as we see politicians doing things that aren't necessarily motivated on fact and science, the public's going to, their trust in politicians is already wearing thin. What do you make of the CDC and uh, the WHO guidance to assume COVID-19 when coding deaths? This is one way to artificially inflate numbers to give the politicians uh, a bit of uh, to cover their gluteus maximus. Uh, I don't see any other reason why you should call something something that it isn't on the death certificate. Or something that you don't know, if you don't know what it is. You say you don't know. By mid-April, New York had become the new hotspot for the coronavirus outbreak, hitting a death toll of more than 10,000 people. Unsurprisingly, Statistical shenanigans played a major role in achieving this negative milestone. As The Guardian points out, the soaring death toll has been fueled by the adding of 3,778 people, who were not tested for COVID-19, but are presumed to have died from it. Last week, Bill de Blasio, New York City's mayor, admitted that the official death toll was probably too low, as many people who died at home or in nursing homes were not included. By this point, it was apparent that there's a concerted effort to artificially boost the numbers of COVID-19 deaths. This piqued the interest of the investigative journalists from Project Veritas, who released secret recordings of three funeral directors, sharing their firsthand experience with the way deaths are coded in New York. To me, all you're doing is you're padding st uh, statistics. You know, you're putting people on that have COVID-19. If they didn't have it, you're making the death rate for New York City a lot higher than it should be. 
To be honest with you, all of the death certificates they're writing COVID on, all of the death certificates, whether they had a positive test, whether they didn't. So I, I think, you know, again, this is my personal opinion. I, I think like the mayor in our city, they're looking for federal funding, and the more they put COVID on a death certificate, the more they can ask for federal funds. So I think it's, it's, it's political. Um, I had one that was autopsied because it was furious, um, and the, apparently, and I don't know who the Supreme Court Justice is, but the Supreme Court Justice was related to this family, and she says, I know my sister didn't die of COVID-19, she said she had Alzheimer's, and they didn't suction her. You have to suction because they forget how to swallow. And um, right away they put down COVID-19 on her death certificate and this Supreme Court Justice, whoever it is, contacted the hospital, they did an independent autopsy, bingo, no COVID-19. Unsurprisingly, the United Kingdom seems to have adopted the same modus operandi of manipulating COVID-19 statistics. Northern Ireland's public health agency defines a COVID-19 death as Individuals who have died within 28 days of first positive result, whether or not COVID-19 was the cause of death. In England and Wales, a death can be attributed to COVID-19 only based on the doctor's suspicion. A positive test result is not required at all. For example, if before death the patient had symptoms typical of COVID-19 infection, but the test result has not been received, it would be satisfactory to give COVID-19 as the cause of death. In the circumstances of there being no swab, it is satisfactory to apply clinical judgment. To make things even worse, the new coronavirus bill specifically states that COVID-19 is no longer considered a notifiable disease. This means that deaths attributed to COVID-19 are completely exempt from jury inquest, even if there are strong suspicions that the novel coronavirus is not the cause of death. In other words, not only does the government actively encourage doctors to specify COVID-19 as the cause of death, even when there is little or no evidence for it, but also, they have intentionally removed the safeguards which were designed to correct these mistakes. Furthermore, in regards to the new coronavirus bill, the office of the chief coroner stated that these deaths don't have to be referred to a coroner at all. Any registered medical practitioner can sign a medical certificate of cause of death, even if the deceased was not attended during their last illness, and not seen after death, provided that they are able to state the cause of death to the best of their knowledge and belief. Similar bizarre policies forbidding or recommending against autopsies have been enacted by numerous governments around the world. Fortunately, there are pathologists who have shared their findings with the public. Professor Klaus Püschel ist der Leiter der Rechtsmedizin im UKE. Er und sein Kollege obduzieren alle, die in Hamburg an Covid-19 gestorben sind. Seiner Ansicht nach ist die Angst vor dem Virus übertrieben. Covid-19 sei eine vergleichsweise... Sie haben gesagt, das ist jetzt glaube ich zehn Tage her in einem Interview mit einer großen Zeitung, Sie hätten noch keinen einzigen Covid-19-Fall auf Ihrem Seziertisch gehabt, der ausschließlich an Covid-19 ohne eine weitere Vorerkrankung gestorben sei. Stand heute immer noch so? Ja, immer noch derselbe Stand. Alle Toten, wir haben inzwischen äh, über 100 in dieser Region äh, obduziert, äh, hatten schwere vorbestehende innere Erkrankungen. Die waren zwischen 50 und 100 Jahre alt. Das Durchschnittsalter ist bei 80 Jahren. 
Along with the significantly inflated COVID mortality figures, the hospital admission data has also been heavily manipulated. As explained by the Daily Mail, hospitals in New York have disclosed that nearly half of their so-called COVID-19 patients currently hospitalized were admitted for other reasons. Likewise, in England, close to 40% of patients included in the government's daily COVID statistics may have been admitted for something else, such as a broken leg. In South Africa, ground zero of the Omicron outbreak, up to 60% of COVID patients were not admitted primarily for the virus at the height of the crisis there. An even more blatant falsifying of data was admitted by Australian officials from the New South Wales state. So, for example, if you were 22 years of age, uh, you had COVID three weeks ago, uh, you'd recovered from that, fell off your bicycle, broke your arm and came to hospital, we would count you as a COVID admission. Given all this statistical trickery, it should come as no surprise that the case figure has also been tampered with. I noticed in your paper you said that, that in mid-March there was a change in the reporting system. What was that all about? This is not the first time it happens. On March 20th, Germany changed its reporting system and suddenly a lot of cases that had not been reported before were reported. But this is not a sudden increase in, in cases. Overall, this had no impact on the dynamics of the German epidemic. It increased until about March 27th or so, and has been stable or declining since. The problem in this disease is that reporting and diagnosing are not separated and recorded differently. In the AIDS epidemic, Every case was reported with a day of diagnosis and a day of reporting. For whatever reason, this standard developed during the AIDS epidemic is not being employed here. So we cannot deconvolute this data. In addition to this, as the supply of PCR testing kits was increasing, authorities began testing more and more people, which of course resulted in a drastic rise in the number of registered infections. At a certain point, government officials started to erroneously use the terms infection and case interchangeably, even though they don't have the same meaning. In medicine, a viral infection is considered to be the invasion of an organism by a virus. When it comes to acute respiratory diseases, such as COVID-19, the flu or just a simple cold, the vast majority of infections are non-symptomatic, whereas symptomatic infections are much more rare. Historically, with regard to seasonal influenza or the common cold, people with no symptoms, even if infected, have always been considered healthy, while those who have developed symptoms and have gotten sick, are the ones who are considered cases of the disease. However, these simple medical principles have been completely disregarded during the COVID-19 pandemic, and so, both symptomatic and non-symptomatic infections are now counted as cases. The test that we have for the virus does not tell us whether we have an active virus in a person. It's being called uh, by the media a case. It's not a case at all. 
It's just that we can detect that at some time in the past, perhaps there has been viral infection, but it's probably been removed now. A case is when someone gets sick from a disease. That's completely different from a positive test. In this phase of the uh, pandemic, people have equated positive tests with cases. Now, this isn't correct. This is simply wrong. In the normal winter, we never obsessively test the population for any virus to the extent to which this virus is being tested for. Um, and the fact is, if you have a positive test, but you're not unwell, you cannot be regarded as a case of this disease. You're just somebody who's got a virus. The only people who, in a normal winter, turn up as cases of this disease um, are people who are admitted to hospital, people who become seriously ill. And they're a, vanish, a very tiny proportion uh, of, of the, the number of positive tests that you would do if you, if you tested everybody. The WHO also agrees that the criteria for diagnosing a case of COVID-19 should include not only a positive PCR test, but also clinical observations of the patient's symptoms among other things. Most PCR assays are indicated as an aid for diagnosis, therefore, healthcare providers must consider any result in combination with timing of sampling, specimen type, assay specifics, clinical observations, patient history, confirmed status of any contacts, and epidemiological information. Ignoring these scientific basics, authorities around the world have relied solely on PCR tests to diagnose COVID-19, quarantining countless numbers of healthy non-symptomatic people who just tested positive for the virus. What makes this even worse, is that there are fundamental problems with the polymerase chain reaction test. At its core, this diagnostic method does not even test for the virus itself. Instead, it is designed to amplify a DNA fragment numerous times, until the fragment is large enough to be identified as part of the genetic sequence of the virus. The higher the number of cycles required to detect the targeted viral DNA, the less likely it is that the person is infected with the virus. A very well-researched article in the New York Times, explores this topic in further detail. This number of amplification cycles needed to find the virus, called the cycle threshold, is never included in the results sent to doctors and coronavirus patients, although it could tell them how infectious the patients are. In three sets of testing data that include cycle thresholds, compiled by officials in Massachusetts, New York, and Nevada, up to 90% of people testing positive carried barely any virus, a review by the Times found. On Thursday, the United States recorded 45,604 new coronavirus cases, according to a database maintained by the Times. If the rates of contagiousness in Massachusetts and New York were to apply nationwide, then perhaps only 4,500 of those people may actually need to isolate and submit to contact tracing. One solution would be to adjust the cycle threshold used now to decide that a patient is infected. Most tests set the limit at 40, a few at 37. This means that you are positive for the coronavirus, if the test process required up to 40 cycles or 37 to detect the virus. Tests with thresholds so high may detect not just life virus, but also genetic fragments, leftovers from infection that pose no particular risk, akin to finding a hair in a room long after a person has left, Dr. Mina said. Any test with a cycle threshold above 35 is too sensitive, agreed Juliet Morrison, a virologist at the University of California, Riverside. I'm shocked that people would think that 40 could represent a positive, she said. A more reasonable cutoff would be 30 to 35, she added. Dr. Mina said he would set the figure at 30 or even less. Those changes would mean the amount of genetic material in a patient's sample would have to be 100-fold to 1,000-fold that of the current standard for the test to return a positive result, at least, one worth acting on. 
The CDC's own calculations suggest that it is extremely difficult to detect any live virus in a sample above a threshold of 33 cycles. In Massachusetts, from 85 to 90 percent of people who tested positive in July with a cycle threshold of 40, would have been deemed negative if the threshold were 30 cycles, Dr. Mina said. I would say that none of those people should be contact traced, not one. The number of people with positive results who are not infectious is particularly concerning, said Scott Becker, Executive Director of the Association of Public Health Laboratories. Another expert who is also aware of the unreliability of PCR tests, is none other than Dr. Anthony Fauci, the leading COVID-19 advisor to the United States government. If you get a cycle threshold of 35 or more, that the chances of it being replication competent are minuscule. Mm. But you never, you almost never can culture virus from a 37 threshold cycle. Further proof of the shortcomings of PCR tests comes from a couple of court cases around Europe. In Portugal and Austria, judges have ruled that the PCR test for COVID-19 is an unreliable and insufficient diagnostic tool and should not justify the isolation of individuals who have tested positive. The debate over the accuracy of the polymerase chain reaction test is nothing new in the world of science. Ever since Kerry Mullis invented the method in 1993 and received the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for it, he has adamantly insisted that the PCR test is most useful in biomedical research and criminal forensics and has extremely limited potential for diagnosing viral sickness. And with PCR, if you do it well, you can find almost anything in anybody. It starts making you believe in the sort of Buddhist notion that everything is contained in everything else, right? I mean, because if you can mo- amplify one single molecule up to, a, to something that you can really measure, which PCR can do, then there's just very few molecules that you don't have at least one single one of them in your body, okay? So that could be thought of as a misuse of it just to, to claim that it's meaningful. It doesn't tell you that you're sick, and it doesn't tell you that the thing you ended up with really was going to hurt you or anything like that. In addition to this, the manufacturers of PCR test kits for SARS-CoV-2 have specified that their products should be used only for research purposes, not for diagnostic procedures. The reason for this is that these PCR test kits have not undergone the standard trials required to prove their efficacy in detecting the virus. Instead, The Federal Drug Administration has allowed these products to be put on the market by giving them emergency use authorization, asserting that there is no time for rigorous quality control procedures due to urgent pandemic circumstances. When we put all the pieces of the puzzle together, we come to a very crucial realization. The case statistics are based on completely unproven PCR tests, which are giving an incredibly high percentage of false positives, which in turn are mislabeled as cases. This of course results in highly exaggerated case and death figures, which are the main driving forces behind the draconian lockdown policies. Unsurprisingly, the mainstream media has done very little to inform the public about these key issues. In fact, popular news outlets have been at the forefront of spreading false information on COVID-19. A secret footage released by Project Veritas reveals that CBS News had published a fake news report on the coronavirus. It turns out that medical staff members from Cherry Health Clinic were posing as patients lining up for a COVID-19 test. Apparently, the news crew wanted more people in the line because they knew it was scheduled. Yeah, so we're just looking for volunteers to go out and just drive through the tent. Yeah, she did. She just... 
was just to make it look busy for the mules because they were right there. Well, we knew right they were coming. We had no clue that we were going to have to like do face patients. I didn't see you guys do the swab at all. I just saw you talking yeah. with them. And then I was talking with you the other girl. It. There were a couple real patients which made it worse. The scandal blew up like wildfire and CBS immediately removed the news report from their website. This begs the question, how can we possibly trust similar reports of hospitals being overwhelmed with patients? Many physicians have come forward, telling a much different story. The hospital released some data today. In the hospital today, there is 14 cases of COVID out of 900,000 people and there's three people on ventilators per their public data. So when you talk about an overwhelming COVID illness in Kern County, we do not have that. A similar situation has been observed all across the United States. According to the American Hospital Association, in the first half of 2020, there have been 19.5% fewer inpatients and 34.5% fewer outpatients compared to previous years. There are several factors that are responsible for this shocking statistics. On one hand, many hospitals canceled scheduled doctor's appointments, diagnostic procedures, and even operations, in order to have enough capacity for the expected massive surge of coronavirus patients. However, these expectations never materialized in most clinics. On the other hand, people with other illnesses were too afraid of catching SARS-CoV-2, and so, they avoided going to the hospital at all costs. Despite all this, Politicians kept on insisting that even more beds are needed for the inevitable incoming tsunami of COVID-19 patients. Stadiums, sports arenas, hotels and other large buildings were repurposed into field hospitals, but remained largely empty for months on end. The U.S. naval ship called Comfort, with about 1,000 beds, and 1,200-member crew, was docked at the New York coast for about a month. But in the end, only 182 patients received care on board the vessel. Likewise, the naval ship called Mercy stayed at the California coast for more than seven weeks, during which, a mere 77 people were treated there. A similar scenario has unfolded in the United Kingdom and many other countries. The staggering discrepancy between the fact that hospitals have largely remained unused during the pandemic, and the news reports of medical systems being overwhelmed, raised a lot of suspicions among people. As a result, Hashtag film your hospital started to trend on Twitter, with countless videos revealing that indeed most medical facilities have very few patients in them. Meanwhile, doctors and nurses from all across the globe were bored to death, and decided to show the world their hidden dancing talents. Would medical personnel be doing this, if humanity was indeed in the middle of one of the deadliest pandemics in known history? Would they find time and energy to dance and twerk, if they were desperately fighting for the lives of unprecedented number of terribly ill patients, when every second could mean the difference between life and death? If people were dropping like flies, one might think it wouldn't be so easy to be in such a great mood. Given all the lies about the medical systems being on the brink of breakdown, how could we possibly trust similar reports of morgues and cemeteries being overflown with dead bodies, necessitating the digging of mass graves? How many people died not because of COVID, 
but rather, because they were unable to get access to proper medical care on time. And, just as importantly, how many people were killed by the actual treatment of their COVID illness? The German doctor of internal medicine, Dr. Klaus Kionlein, explains how a case study published in the medical journal Lancet, reveals the dangers of these new treatment protocols. Von einem Patienten, von einem 50-jährigen Patienten, der an Corona erkrankt, äh, erkrankt ist. Bei dem Patienten ging das los mit Husten, äh, Schüttelfrost, Fieber, Erschöpfung und äh, Shortness of Breath, also schlecht Luft. Atemnot, ja. Und die Behandlung erfolgte mit Hochdosis Methylprednisolon, also Hochdosis Cortison, 600 Milligramm Cortison sind das, Moxifloxacin, das ist ein sehr hartes Antibiotikum mhm. aus der Gruppe der Garasehemmer. Zusätzlich auch Liponavir und Ritonavir, das sind beides Nukleosidanaloger und Proteasehemmer aus der AIDS-Therapie. Ziemlich toxische Sachen. Und das Ganze noch mit Interferon versehen, das auch ein Virostatikum bzw. Immunsuppressivum ist. Das ist auch, hat auch immunsuppressive Effekte. Und dann zum Schluss noch noch mal ein Breitbandantibiotikum darüber geschüttet und das führte dann dazu, dass der Patient gestorben ist, ein 50-jähriger Patient. Also nicht die Risikogruppe, keineswegs. Nee. Das heißt, diese Behandlung hat jetzt das Immunsystem von also diesem Aus meiner Mann Sicht ist diese Behandlung ein Kunstfehler und hat den Patienten umgebracht. Warum hat man das gemacht? Aus Angst wahrscheinlich. Weil er Luftnot hatte, hat man ihm Kortison gegeben. Nach Cortison geht es einem erstmal besser, weil die Entzündungsantwort ausgebremst wird. Das ist ein Lymphozytenkiller, Cortison. Da schwillt alles ab, die Lymphozyten werden vernichtet. Das ist aber gleichzeitig die Abwehrreaktion, die man damit unterbindet. Das Fieber geht runter, dem Patienten geht es vorübergehend besser. Er kriegt ein bisschen besser Luft, aber es kann dann letal ausgehen, wie in diesem Fall zu sehen. Heißt das, dass das jetzt so das Muster ist, wonach man in Italien behandelt? Ich fürchte das. Ich bin nun nicht da in Italien und kann auch nicht die Krankenakten einsehen. Aber wenn sowas im Lancet steht... Als ein Paradebeispiel, oder? Als Paradebeispiel, auch wenn es ungünstig ausgegangen ist, vermute ich, dass die Ärzte nach genau so einem Schema dort unten auch vorgehen. Und das ist die eigentliche Gefahr, die jetzt droht, dass die Ärzte nach diesem Schema oder nach solchen Schemata äh, vorgehen und die Leute durch die Therapie sozusagen dadurch eine höhere Letalität erzeugen. Und Basically, what he's saying is the uh, treatment is uh, malpractice and is killing people. Uh, rather than reading the whole thing, obviously I didn't realize it's going to be in German, but uh, legally they're all safe, uh, but they, when you put them all together, they can kill you. And that's basically what's been done all over the world. With every passing month, the standard treatment protocol for COVID-19 evolved, and a new drug, called remdesivir, became a key part of it. The product was developed by Gilead Sciences for the treatment of hepatitis C, and later it was investigated as a potential cure for Ebola. In that study, which was conducted in 2019, the group of subjects given remdesivir had the highest death rate, compared to the other three groups which received different therapeutics. Because of its poor performance and potential risk for the subjects, remdesivir was removed from the trial. Months later, Scientists began testing its safety and efficacy in COVID-19 patients. Two studies published in the Lancet Medical Journal determined that remdesivir use was not associated with a difference in time to clinical improvement, and that no clinical benefit was observed from the use of remdesivir in patients who were admitted to hospital for COVID-19. 
Even the WHO announced that they recommend against the use of remdesivir, after their own clinical trial showed that the drug was ineffective. Furthermore, plenty of scientific publications have documented the negative safety profile of remdesivir. In France, four out of five subjects who were given the drug, had to stop taking it. Two of them, because of severely elevated liver enzyme, three to five times the normal range, indicating liver toxicity, and the other two, because of renal failure, requiring a kidney replacement. Moreover, a different group of researchers analyzed the World Health Organization's global database, which contains reports of potential side effects of medicinal products. They found that remdesivir administration resulted in 20 times more reports of acute renal failure, compared to the administration of other drugs given to COVID-19 patients who were equally sick. These findings were later corroborated by another team of scientists, who stated in their paper that kidney disorders, almost exclusively acute kidney injury, represent a serious, early, and potentially fatal adverse drug reaction of remdesivir. And last but not least, remdesivir is known to cause severe toxicity to the cardiovascular system. Unsurprisingly, medical professionals have tried to warn the public of the grave dangers of this product. And they rolled out remdesivir onto a substantial number of patients for which we all saw it was killing the patients. And now, it's the FDA-approved drug that is continuing to kill patients in the United States. As we're driving to the hospital, I told him, I'm very worried about you. And he said, well, I know not to go on COVID protocols. I know not to take remdesivir. I know not to do a ventilator. The very next day that he was in the hospital, he woke up with the IV in his arm. And I knew that kidney shutting down from being given remdesivir is pretty common. Called the hospital and I got a different nurse on the phone and said, oh yes, he was given remdesivir as soon as he came in. Roughly nine days later, his kidneys were at 6% function. He was vented full-time dialysis. And the doctor told me that uh, Ryan was a full code. So he said that he would do CPR if I wanted to. But he told me that it would only prolong Ryan's death and not prolong his life. That Ryan was really gone. It almost beggars belief that such an immensely dangerous product would be the staple treatment choice in hospitals. And we have to ask ourselves, how did medical authorities give the green light to this drug in the first place? As a start, the main study, which allegedly proved the efficacy of remdesivir, was conducted by a group of scientists, seven of which had financial ties to Gilead Sciences, the manufacturer of the drug. Needless to say, the positive outcome was achieved only after a carefully crafted scientific sleight of hand. Even look at the remdesivir study published in New England Journal. We know that they committed scientific misconduct. In that remdesivir study, you may not know this. No. They changed the endpoint. They, what they did, Tony Fauci didn't say this in the White House. They unblinded the study halfway. It was not going to reach the predetermined endpoints. The endpoints were death and intubation and being on a ventilator. They realized the study would fail. So what did they do? They changed the endpoint to some nebulous endpoint of time to recovery. And since they knew which patients were unblinded, they discharged them early. It's a fabricated, fraudulent study. In addition to this, the scientific panel which provides the coronavirus treatment guidelines to doctors all across the United States also involves experts connected to Gilead Sciences. Sadly, Apart from the highly toxic cocktail of drugs such as remdesivir, 
the coronavirus treatment protocol also includes another potentially deadly therapy. Many physicians have decided to stop using the mechanical ventilation machines, because of the unusually high number of deaths caused by them. Surprisingly, the dangers of this medical breathing apparatus have been known for years. In a nutshell, when the tube is inserted into a person's airway, it can potentially allow germs to travel directly into the lungs, causing ventilator-associated pneumonia. According to Medscape.com, the disease is reported to occur in 8-28% to of patients who are given mechanical ventilation, and has a mortality rate of 33-50%. to Moreover, it appears that the intubation protocols for COVID-19 patients, use a much higher than usual ventilatory pressures, volumes, and flow rates, which irreversibly destroys the lung tissue, and further increases the lethality of the treatment. Shocking reports of the deadly use of mechanical ventilation, have come out from Erin Marie Olszewski, a highly respected medical nurse, who decided to make secret recordings while she worked at Elmhurst Hospital in New York. Obviously, Elmhurst Hospital in Queens is right now the epicenter within the epicenter. Elmhurst Hospital is the epicenter of the epicenter. What is the likelihood of coming out of the hospital you're in? The only person that survived, ironically, is a guy who pulled his own uh, tube out. <laughs> yeah. So he woke up enough to be able to do that? Yeah. He wanted it out. He should have never been on in the first place. That's another, that's a whole other story. But he oh, pulled oh. his tube out, and so he has a chance again. Oh, oh, he did? He excavated himself. Oh, he did? Yeah. I didn't know that. I thought he <clears throat> was excavated. Had he, had he not pulled that out, he would definitely, he would definitely be dead. For sure. They don't excavate anyone. Here's the problem. Not a single patient here, since this thing began, has been discharged or, or successfully excavated. It's blowing people's lungs out. They're so sedated. He had probably eight or nine drips. It's all sedation. It's all sedation and uh, paralytics. So you are asleep. It is essentially like you're you're under you know you're in surgery. You know when they put you under like that uh, for a good month straight. There's no way you can recover from something like that. You're brain dead if you do. Another key insight into the COVID-19 protocols comes from two lawyers whose clients are suing clinics for the death of their loved ones. So tell me then what, go ahead, because you have so many clients involved in this. Is, is there a commonality to the story and, and what does that yes. sound like? There's, there's a, a, a tremendous commonality. Since the press conference, I think we've received thousands of emails wow. and phone calls from across the country in 32 states was the last count we had. I'm blown away by the similarities. There's no exaggeration in here. We have pictures of patients with their hands strapped to the beds with bruising and all sorts of uh, discolorization through their hands. It's, it's incredible. They, their, their phone is put across the room. They can't call anybody. They can't ask for help. Oftentimes the, 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 the button for calling for a nurse is removed. They're in this room. They're isolated from their family. They're zip tied down. The oxygen is being shoved into them. And then uh, 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 sometimes a psychiatrist will come in and say, well, you look agitated. Let's get you on a morphine drip. Oh, and then they just, they can't fight the effects of the remdesivir, which is doing something to their kidneys. Their lungs are filling up with fluid. They're getting all kinds of drugs. I mean, we have clients, and, and I know of folks who have received 30, 40 plus mm. drugs, many of them contraindicated for use with remdesivir. Unbelievable. They're not given food or water of any kind, not through an IV, no, of, of no kind. 
Average time to death is about nine days. As nurses, we are getting reports across the country from our American frontline nurses about patients not getting food, patients not getting water. How come a patient hasn't been fed in nine days? Why do I need to get a court order to force a hospital to feed a person who isn't intubated and who's literally telling you they would like food? Oh, well, you can't take your BiPAP mask off. Well, that's what us nurses are for. We're going to help you take that off and we're going to help you eat, but we're not allowed to. If you know if they're on a ventilator, they're not getting basic standards of care. I've had patients that haven't been bathed, haven't been fed, haven't been given water, haven't been turned. And if you ask me, this isn't a hospital, this is a concentration camp. Absolutely it is. And there's a lot of nurses that, that, were, that, that know that this is wrong, but they're afraid to like say anything publicly. My bigger problem with this whole scenario is when they intubate people who don't need it. Yeah. And it looks very clear to me that they're just pushing it. Where's it coming from? What's the purpose? Are you guys really trying to kill everybody like everybody thinks? Following orders has led to the sheer number of deaths that has occurred in these hospitals. I didn't see a single patient die of COVID. I've seen a substantial number of patients die of negligence and medical malfeasance. What's even worse is that authorities actively encourage and enable such atrocities by heavily rewarding each hospital at every step of the process. From the moment a patient enters the clinic to the moment they exit in a body bag. So you're saying they're putting non-COVID or COVID rule out with definite COVID patients? Yes. This is going to be the only COVID, so they shouldn't put any non-COVIDs here. Well, that's what they've been doing. They're banking on the fact that they'll get it because they're already immunocompromised. So they're just, they're, and they'll put them in the same room. So there's double rooms. So you have a COVID with a non-COVID. They don't even care. What makes you think they really want them to, to get COVID? Because it, money, mm. money. If they become a complex patient and all that's required is you either intubate them or you put them in the ICU or you say they're in the ICU, maybe they're just in a room. At that point, they're a complex patient. Average charge rate is 454,000 and change. On top of that, our government has incentivized the use of remdesivir to the exclusion of other remedies. If you, if you don't offer ivermectin, you don't offer hydroxychloroquine, you just offer remdesivir. Now you get a 20, you get a code and you get a 20% bump on the entire hospital stay. That's another $90,000 on 450, oh roughly. I'm just using round numbers here. Mm -hmm. uh, so I hope your mathematicians in the audience don't, yeah. don't get too hard on me. But, but You're over a half a million dollars incentives to a hospital system. Yeah. They're being told to shut down all their other departments. There's no oncology anymore. There's no heart, you know, mm -hmm. doctors in the building. All of your money is going to have to come during COVID from COVID. Well, look, this is just one of the hospital systems that's, um, um, this, this is the, the stock tracking. Look at the S&P 500. Look, it tracks. The green there is this HCA. That's a hospital group that does very well. It kind of goes right along with the, the index. But look, right in there around May and then July, mm -hmm. you start handing them giant funding. Look what happens to their stock. They stop treating cancer. They stop treating heart disease. No money coming in from anything else except the government paying you to kill people with remdesivir and ventilators. And now you're more profitable than you've ever been that is absolutely shocking and it's deplorable and i don't think it's going to age well in our history books while many hospitals were killing patients for profit 
Clinicians from all corners of the planet were successfully treating COVID-19 using hydroxychloroquine, a decades-old proven malaria medication, which is known for its strong antiviral properties, and is a staple in the World Health Organization's essential medicines list. In your home state where you were treating people, what would the protocol be? Our hospital would just treat them based on the individual, you know, and they were using the hydroxychloroquine and the zinc and, you know, that protocol, for sure. At your hospital? Oh, yeah. And that seemed to work? Yeah. We didn't have anybody that died. Only on two tonight, a Houston hospital is having success treating the coronavirus patients. In fact, its recovery rate is perfect. Fascinating, isn't it? To treat patients here, Dr. Veron is using an experimental drug protocol. It's a cocktail of vitamins, steroids, and blood thinners. Each patient also is getting hydroxychloroquine, the malaria drug touted by President Trump. The protocol is controversial because there hasn't been time for extensive testing, but Dr. Veron says it works. We've treated over 40 plus patients with this uh, treatment and we haven't had a single complication. So far, he says, none of his patients have died. This is, uh, this is working. And if it's working, I'm gonna keep on doing it. What we're finding clinically with our patients is that it really only works in conjunction with zinc. So the hydroxychloroquine opens the zinc channel, zinc goes into the cell, it then blocks the replication of the, of the cellular machinery. You're prescribing it and it is working for COVID-19 patients. Every patient I prescribed it to has been very, very ill. And within eight to 12 hours, they were basically symptom free. And so wow. clinically, I am seeing a resolution that mirrors what we saw in the French study and some of the other studies worldwide. Um, but what I am seeing is that people are taking it alone by itself. It's not having efficacy. As the evidence supporting the use of HCQ piled up, doctors around the world started to demand that the drug becomes more readily accessible for COVID-19 treatment. In France, for example, this grassroots initiative culminated in a petition signed by hundreds of thousands of people, including thousands of physicians. In August 2020, hydroxychloroquine in combination with several other medications, formed the basis of a multifaceted protocol created by a team of expert physicians, led by the world-renowned Dr. Peter McCullough. We worked with a practice north of us in Dallas, uh, in, uh, uh, in the Plano Frisco area, that uh, did this protocol in hundreds of patients. They demonstrated an 85% reduction in hospitalization and death, as well as another practice led by a legendary Dr. Vladimir Zelenko in Monroe, New York, that showed the exact same thing. Others have come on. Uh, there's been an analysis by Paul Alexander, published in Medical Hypotheses, in the nursing home. We found that almost anything done in the nursing home, different components of these protocols, dropped mortality by 60%. So this has been a story of American heroes. It's been a story of worldwide success. Uh, in the UK, the Bird Group is doing the same thing. In Italy, the Treatment Domiciliary uh, COVID-19 Group, they've actually had rallies in the piazzas of Italy declaring zero hospitalizations with this multi-drug approach. We have Panda in South Africa, the COVID Medical Network in Australia. This entire effort received no support from any government in the entire world. Uh, we had hero doctors that really had to break with the academic ivory tower. We didn't have a single academic institution come up with a single protocol. They didn't even try Harvard, Johns Hopkins, Duke, you name it. Not a single medical center set up even a tent 
to try to treat patients and prevent hospitalization and death. There wasn't an ounce of original research. To make things even worse, from the moment HCQ began showing promising results, the medical establishment embarked on a relentless war against it, with a series of poorly designed studies in which the drug was doomed to fail. First, at the beginning of April, a team of Brazilian researchers conducted a study, which was designed to test the effectiveness of the drug against late-stage COVID-19 illness. The trial was stopped after the death of 11 patients, and hydroxychloroquine was immediately blamed for the disastrous results. However, upon closer inspection, numerous experts, including Professor Peter Kremsner from the University of Tübingen in Germany, condemned the authors of the study for administering doses that were dangerous and definitely too high, several times more than what's normally prescribed. Besides, the participants were given a less safe version of the drug, chloroquine diphosphate, further increasing the chances of a lethal outcome, especially in light of the fact that the subjects were already suffering with a severe case of COVID-19. As a result of this fiasco, the 27 researchers involved in the study are currently under criminal investigation by the Brazilian government. But this is not all. Two more studies were initiated in an attempt to test the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine on late-stage COVID-19 patients. The first one, called Solidarity, was started by the World Health Organization. The other one, called Recovery, was carried out by the UK government. Strangely enough, both of these trials repeated many of the mistakes made in the Brazilian study. First of all, the chosen participants were suffering with late-stage COVID-19, even though previous studies had established that HCQ is mostly effective when given at the early stages of the disease. Secondly, the researchers used extremely high doses of the drug, which not only could diminish any potential benefit from it, but also contribute to lethal outcomes. Once again, medical experts from around the world were perplexed by the terrible misuse of this proven drug. This prompted the Indian Council of Medical Research to write a letter to the World Health Organization, pointing out the obvious flaws in the Solidarity study. As reported by the New Indian Express, a health ministry official explained, Internationally in Solidarity trial, COVID-19 patients are being administered with 800 mg, two loading doses six hours apart, followed by 400 mg, two doses per day for 10 days. The total dosage given to a patient over 11 days is about 9,600 mg, which is four times higher than the dose we are giving to our patients, informed the official. This indicates that in our treatment protocol the efficacy of HCQ is good, and patients are recovering quickly with less amount of dosage being administered, said the official. Counter to all logic, the WHO and UK government disregarded the criticism, and continued using extremely high doses of HCQ in late-stage coronavirus patients. As a result of this decision, the trials concluded that the drug is not effective against the novel coronavirus. But this is not the full extent of the war against HCQ. On May 22, the renowned medical journal Lancet published a study, which found that COVID-19 patients treated with HCQ had a higher risk of dying. Within days, various European governments began banning hydroxychloroquine. In a shocking turn of events, only six days after the Lancet study was published, about 200 scientists signed an open letter, demanding that the paper is investigated for fraud. Well, Lancet published this paper. Anybody looked at it in two seconds knew it didn't make sense. It looked like a fake paper, and which, which I, I can tell you, I'm the editor of two major journals. I did editorial work this morning. I've done this for 20 years. I am telling you, as an editor, a fraudulent paper would never get past my eyes as an editor. 
Never. We have an editor, associate editors. We have two or more reviewers. We have a very tight processing to make sure the data are correct. Il trouve qu'il y a exactement la même moyenne âge, qu'il y a exactement le même sexe ratio, et je, je pense que c'est techniquement strictement impossible. Donc, a priori, sauf à ce que euh, ça devienne un article normal, c'est-à-dire un article pour lequel on peut reproduire les données en ayant accès aux données. Donc, il n'y a aucun accès aux données. To make things even worse, the lead author, Dr. Mandeep Mekra, was found to be in conflict of interest with HCQ's rival drug, Remdesivir. For all these reasons, The Lancet retracted the paper two weeks after its publication, in what can be described as one of the most shameful scientific frauds in modern history. Despite these shocking revelations, the smear campaign against HCQ had already accomplished its goal. Large portions of the public have become fearful of this inexpensive and highly effective drug, and its use in the treatment of COVID-19 remains very limited. Besides, Numerous doctors who have dared to speak out in favor of these effective and safe treatments have become victims of the iron fist of the system. From being relentlessly ridiculed and getting fired from their job to facing legal problems and even receiving death threats. Uh, we saw in Australia early in April, they put on the books uh, in one of the um, uh, provinces in Australia, uh, a law that said if a doctor tried to use hydroxychloroquine, that that doctor could be uh, punished, including imprisonment. The oppressive tactics employed by governments against medical professionals prompted over 17,000 doctors and scientists to sign the Rome Declaration, which states, Thousands of physicians are being prevented from providing treatment to their patients as a result of barriers put up by pharmacies, hospitals, and public health agencies, rendering the vast majority of healthcare providers helpless to protect their patients in the face of disease. Physicians are now advising their patients to simply go home, allowing the virus to replicate, and return when their disease worsens, resulting in hundreds of thousands of unnecessary patient deaths, due to failure to treat. This is not medicine. This is not care. These policies may actually constitute crimes against humanity. This of course brings us to several inescapable questions. What is the motive for governments to falsify coronavirus data, and incentivize hospitals to kill patients, while actively clamping down on any COVID-19 treatment other than a vaccine? Who benefits from this madness, and what is the end goal? These are without a doubt the most crucial questions that need to be answered. That's why we have to roll back the tape and examine each of the fallen dominoes one by one. Only then can we get a full grasp of the true nature of this terrible crisis. And that was the first of four parts of this video. Covidism, Contagious Deception. And we will look at part two on Thursday. I'm not going to do it all at once. Um, but a uh, lot of good information put out in that video. And this recently, it was recently released, I think it was the 19th of uh, April when it came out. Patriot's Day. I wonder if they realized that they were putting it out on Patriot's Day. Probably not, because most people think Patriot's Day is 9-11, due to a bunch of BS from idiots in Congress. But the real Patriot's Day, the shot heard around the world, um, from April 19th of 1775, the shot fired at Lexington, Lexington Green and Concord Bridge in Massachusetts, uh, that was the real Patriot's Day. And... It's, it's interesting that that's when this uh, video series was released. 
but there are four parts. I have I put the link to the actual um, videos in the chat room. So if you want to go there and get them, you can. Uh, they are, believe it or not, downloadable if you have the right software, and which is what I did. But um, they've uh, been put out. It looks like they were done in conjunction of Health Impact News and uh, Robert F. Kennedy and his group, uh, Children's Health Defense. Um, but I think this is going to be a really, really good series. The first part they put out there was amazing. Um, they had Aaron Oshesky from... Uh, you know, undercover representative nurse. Uh, that's a book she wrote. And if you have not read that book or don't have it, I sincerely suggest you get it. It is amazing. And what she covers, what happened at Elmhurst Hospital in New York was nothing short of mass murder. Virtually every single person who went into that hospital, regardless of what it was for, you know, we, there were some people that went in for non-COVID cases and we're in the process of being there. We're diagnosed with COVID and put on a ventilator and remdesivir and killed. And she had one patient that she was nursing uh, back to health. He was doing quite well and was like a day or two from being able to be discharged. They purposely reassigned her to a different area. And then they came back in, put the guy in remdesivir in an event and killed him. Just absolute mass murder. And then at the same time, you've got the orange man saying what a great job he did with Operation Warp Speed and bringing out these COVID jabs and saying how they were safe and effective. And there were people that took them only because Donald Trump said they were safe and effective and died as a result. And again, this is why even if I was still voting, which I am not, if I was, I would never ever support Donald Trump. As far as I'm concerned, that man is just as guilty as Fauci and all the rest because he promoted those things when all the evidence said just the opposite and still does. There's mountains of evidence now. And to this day, if you ask him about it, he, his ego will pop up and he'll brag about how he was the one that got it going and he, it should be called the Trump shot, all this other garbage. And as far as I'm concerned, as long as he's in that uh, mindset, he needs to answer for his crimes just like Fauci and Tedros and Gates and all the rest. It, it amazes me. You know, I remember during the original um, uh, campaign, 2014, 15, 16, when he made the statement that he could literally shoot somebody at high noon at Times Square or someplace in New York and still be elected president. He was right. He's responsible for millions of deaths from these jabs and is still he's still got massive followings of little trumpians out there wanting to get him elected to another term in the in the in the White House. Absolutely amazing. People are willing to overlook mass murder. It's the old thing, he may be a schmuck, but he's our schmuck. It's disgusting, and I'm not going to be a part of it. But anyway, there was so much damning information in there. You know, with the studies on remdesivir from 2019, there were four different drugs that were considered. Remdesivir had the highest kill rate, somewhere around 51, 52, 53% of all the people given it died. 
and that's the drug that Fauci chose to be the one used in the U.S. And it was used only here because he they hoarded all of the every bit of uh, production was kept for the U.S. So we could kill our people first. And at the same time, other countries are saying, oh, don't use that stuff. It's lethal. And the other thing that gets me is one of the other drugs or the things, uh, treatment modalities used in that study was the um, monoclonal antibodies. And they only killed like 30% of the people. But that, again, was one of the major things they used here in the U.S. that was pushed heavily by DeSantis in Florida. It's one of the things they gave Trump when he got COVID and went to Bethesda, I think it was. Tell me they weren't trying to kill him. 30% death rate. <laughs> and all the people were just jumping up and down, screaming about how great monoclonal antibodies were. Oh, yeah, they only killed 30%, not 50% like remdesivir. And no one, for the most part, talked about nutrition. You know, everything else under the sun, they're talking about these drugs, which, you know, ivermectin, um, hydroxychloroquine, granted they worked, but again, no need for them. If people were given the 90 essential nutrients, they probably never would have gotten the thing in the first place, but even if they did, they recover very quickly. And then there were other things out there, um, natural stuff, turpentine, a big one. One of my listeners on my afternoon show got a case of uh, um, COVID, or at least we assume that's what it was, and he tried ivermectin and hardly touched it. Did one dose of turpentine, yeah, and it's been used as a remedy for years and years and years and years. It's been pretty much shot down in this uh, age because, oh my goodness, turpentine, that's pain thinner. You know, you can't drink that. No. It works. One dose of that, and it knocked it out. He was back on his feet. Um, chlorine dioxide thing is the stuff they use to de uh, decontaminate cruise ships when there's an outbreak of something. People use that. Pers you know, very low chance of any kind of negative effects and knocks it right out. Colloidal silver, same thing. Fantastic job. Inexpensive. You can make it yourself at home. Um, and of course, all that stuff was demonized. Question is, why was everything that worked demonized? Even the drugs, Hi ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. Why was that? One reason and one reason only. It's a three words, emergency use authorization. In order to give a drug or a vaccine or an injection emergency use authorization without all the so-called testing they have to go through, which they never go through anyway. But the only reason, the only way you can get that is there cannot be any other viable option or mode of treatment in existence. So, of course, they had to shoot down everything that was working perfectly. You had the hospitals down, down in Florida that were using the uh, hydroxychloroquine, 100% cure rate. Everybody was going back home. Nobody died. Oh, well, gee, we can't have that. We have to demonize it so it can't be used. 
So what do they do? They come up with these people they pay to do a fake study with not even the, the same drug and overdosing people with it. So they were purposely killing people so they could demonize something that worked. Those people should be charged with premeditated murder, period. It was like 12 to 20-some people in that study. Not a large number, but they killed them all on purpose using overdoses of a different drug, claiming it was hydroxychloroquine, just so they could demonize that drug to push the EUA, the emergency use authorization stuff, for these, COVID, these toxic bioweapons they call COVID vaccines. This whole thing has been a huge crime against humanity mass murder project since the very outset. They didn't put these vaccines together in a rush. They had them ready to go day one. And they just waited a little extra long so they could make it give the appearance that they rushed these things to market. When in fact, they were all ready to go. Gates and company had these things done before COVID ever hit the scene. And now we've got millions of people dead worldwide. More from the injections than from the disease itself. The question is, when are the people that are responsible for this, starting with Anthony Fauci, going to be held accountable? And yes, Donald Trump is in that mix. He's down on the list, but he's in there. They all need to be arrested, charged, tried, and if convicted, executed. If any crime ever called for the death penalty, this one does. Millions of people worldwide, between 2019 late 2019, I guess it was, and the current day even, have died as a result of this, either from the, the disease or the jabs. And we need to include the people that developed 5G cell phone technology. That's right. Because you really need to look at what this was everybody's making a big stink about a um, virus released from the Wuhan lab but if you do any research whatsoever you'll find that it's not a virus if, if it was anything it was a toxin of some sort and it was exacerbated by 5g cell phone technology that basically does the same thing that this so-called virus was alleged to have done which is prevent the body from being able to move oxygen around and feed it to the cells. If you remember, Wuhan, China, was the first city to have full coverage of 5G phone technology. And that's when you first started seeing the, the videos of people standing on the street and just dropping over dead. Before COVID. And it was from 5G. People need to realize what's going on. I strongly suggest you check out, go to BitChute or uh, Rumble, 
and look for Space Busters. And one of their best videos is The End of the Germ Theory. It's about two and a half hours long, but if you watch that, you will get an education like you never dreamed. It is absolutely amazing what they cover in that thing. And when it's all said and done, you probably won't believe in the so-called germ theory. Sorry for the background noise. I didn't get my door closed. And apparently my wife has a friend downstairs and they're yakking. <laughs> so it's coming through here. But, um, yeah, I have, uh, you know, people re have to realize the alleged germ theory. What, what do I mean by that? The idea that some little bug bacteria, so-called virus, whatever, floating around in the air, lands on you, and makes you sick. Okay? That is a theory. It's been talked about as though it was proven that it was actual fact by the alleged medical community, the allopathic medical community, for literally decades but it has never once been proven. As a matter of fact, in their attempts to prove it, they've disproven it. The, uh, the video, The End of the Germ Theory by Space Busters, really does a great job of covering that. And they talk a lot about the so-called Spanish flu in 1918, which was not from Spain, <laughs> It was blamed on Spain just as a way to get them to, you know, just an excuse. You know, it was the end of the uh, First World War, and they were the military was giving uh, some sort of vaccine. Can't remember off the top of my head what it was, but they were giving vaccines and talked the American population into taking them too. And oddly enough. The only people to supposedly die from the alleged Spanish flu were the same people who took those vaccines. <laughs> Imagine that. There, were, there was one couple, a husband and wife team, who were both physicians and spent their days going from house to house to house in their city treating people who had the so-called Spanish flu. They were up to their elbows in germs, so to speak, or whatever you want to call it. They were exposed to these people in and out all day long. They never took the vaccines, and they never got sick. Imagine that. Being exposed to all these people in a highly contagious illness, supposedly, and they never got sick. Also, during the same time frame, the, I believe it was the military, but I'm not positive there, but they were using Navy um, uh, prisoners, I believe, volunteers. And they were taking people, well, as a matter of fact, let me see, I'm just reading in one of my, my most recent favorite book, um, I'm reading about it, or just read about it the other day. I'm uh, bringing up my Kindle app here because I've got this on my 
There we go. Let's see if it wants to pick up where I was on my... Yes, let's go there. Bingo. Let's back up a few pages. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Um, trying to find the right spot here. Do-do-do-do-do-do. Uh, Maybe. Might not be able to find it right away. Well, shoot. Hmm. I'm just looking through here. I think I'm close. Ah, here we go. Um, a further contradiction of the theory that viruses are transmitted between people can be seen from another common infectious disease, and that's in quotes, namely influenza or the flu. The worst outbreak of this disease is reported to have occurred during 1918 and to have killed many tens of millions of people. The number of people reported to have died as a result of this epidemic varies widely from about 20 million to about 100 million people, which raises many questions about the veracity of these claims and about the number of genuine casualties from the flu rather from the effects of World War I, which is the vaccines. There are also many reports that claim the real duration of the epidemic to have been far longer than a single year. The reason that a huge number of people died during this period is claimed to be because the disease was highly contagious. There are, however, many problems with such claims. The 1918 flu is discussed in greater detail in the next chapter. The epidemic of 1918 is usually referred to as a viral disease, although initially there were ideas that it was caused by a bacterium. Herbert Shelton described some of the early experiments conducted on volunteers from the U.S. Naval Detention Camp to determine the alleged bacterial cause and to test the transmission of the disease. In his book entitled The Hygienic System, Volume 4, Orthopathy, he describes one of the experiments conducted to test the transmission of the disease and explains that, and this is in quotes, this is from his book, Ten other men were carried to the bedside of ten new cases of influenza and spent 45 minutes with them. Each well man or, or symptom-free man had ten sick men cough in his face. He records that the results of these experiments were that none of the volunteers developed any symptoms of influenza following the experiment. It may be suggested that 10 is too small a number to be a statistically significant sample size, but this argument would miss the salient point, which is that each healthy man had 10 sick men cough in his face and none of them became ill. A fact that contradicts the idea that viral particles hitchhike onto saliva or mucus that is ejected from the body during a sneeze or a cough. According to the germ theory, all of the healthy men should have been infected by the viruses and become ill. The fact that they did not fall ill poses a direct and serious challenge to the basic assumption that flu is infectious. Exceptions to any rule is an indication that the rule is flawed and needs to be re-examined. The empirical evidence is primacy, or primary. 
the lack of understanding by the medical establishment about the mechanism for the viral infection of cells has not improved since the publication of the 2007 poliovirus article previously referred to. There remained both a lack of understanding about and an absence of proof of the mechanism involved. This lack of progress is indicated by the August 2015 article entitled A Non-Enveloped Virus Hijacks Host Disaggregation Machinery to Translocate Across the Endoplasmic Reticulum Membrane, which states that how non-enveloped viruses penetrate a host membrane to enter cells and cause disease remains an enigmatic step. Dr. Hillman identifies the endoplasmic reticulum as one of the artifacts that are, ge- that are generated as a result of the preparation procedures necessary to view viruses under an electron microscope. The website of the Encyclopedia of Life, a project that promotes the medical establishment view, contains a page about viruses and refers to them as microscopic organisms which demonstrates the efforts to present the case that viruses are alive. (laughs) Yeah. To further promote this view, the EOL webpage provides information about the stages of the viral life cycle, the first stage of which is claimed to be one one in which the virus attaches itself to a cell. The page states that attachment is the intermolecular, inter, intermolecular binding between viral capsid proteins and receptors on the outer membrane of the host cell. The problem with this explanation is that Dr. Hillman also identified receptors as cellular artifacts that are generally by the preparation or generated by the preparation procedures used in such experiments. The other thing is, how do these things move around? How do they manage to find it and attach to it if they're not mobile? (laughs) There's a big question. It is claimed that once a virus has penetrated the cell, it will replicate, which is said to initiate the disease process. The EOL webpage refers to numerous mechanisms involved in the process that include cell lysis and the ultimate death of the cell. The page makes the significant statement that in multicellular organisms, if significant numbers of cells die, the whole organism may suffer gross metabolic disruption or even mortality, which means that the whole thing might die. There is a huge problem with this statement, which is that many billions of human cells die every day. Cell death is a normal part of the process of human life. The idea that cell death is synonymous with disease is therefore highly misleading. It completely contradicts the known biological functions of the human body. The reason that cell death is perceived to be a disease process is because this is what is likely to have been observed during laboratory experiments. However, there are genuine reasons for cells to die after tissue samples have been subjected to the various preparation procedures used in laboratory experimentation. As explained by Torsten, Engelbrecht and Dr. Kohlein, who was in the previous video we listened to, in Virus Mania. This phenomenon is particularly virulent in bacterial and viral research and in the whole pharmaceutical development of medicines altogether, where laboratory experiments on tissue samples, which are tormented with a variety of often highly reactive chemicals, allow few conclusions about reality. 
and yet conclusions are constantly drawn and then passed straight on to the production of medications and vaccines. So basically, rather than continue on reading this, and you know, that was a, a good bit of what I was getting at. The fact that this whole thing, the, uh, the alleged um, germ theory, A, has never been proved. And like I said, when they were trying to prove it in 1918, they basically disproved it. In other words, there's never been any indication, any scientific experimentation done that shows that if you put one well individual in the face of another sick individual, that the well person will get sick from breathing the stuff given off by the, by the sick person. It hasn't happened. So how do we look at this? You know, with COVID as bad as it was, you know, wearing all the face diapers and the socialist distancing and everything else that was, and the, the lockdowns, everything that was wrapped around this whole thing. Where did the idea for all these things come from? Well, when uh, COVID first started and they started pushing face diapers, I started digging for any research whatsoever that showed the efficacy of face masks. And I couldn't find a thing. I tried to find what initiated the use of face masks in the first place. Couldn't find it. And the only thing I can think of, and this is based on, you know, observing the medical community over the years, is I'm sure sometime or another, probably in the late 1800s, some doctor somewhere decided that it would be a good idea, based on the germ theory, to put a, a, a diaper on your face. It's, you know, it started out in surgery. And then in the, the 1900s, we had, of course, the, the so-called Spanish flu. And even back then, they were pushing face diapers on people. And there was a big pushback as well. But some idiot doctor, just out of the clear blue, decided, hey, it's going to be a, it's a good idea to wear a face diaper. You know, probably watch somebody sneeze. And thinking, well, you know, there's got to be loaded with germs. And if you sneeze into the sterile field of a surgery situation, you know, it's going to be bad. And that person's going to get sick. Well, interestingly enough... To my knowledge, there's never been any real research done on that. It was just somebody's anecdotal idea, and it caught on. And that's, you know, it becomes one person does it, and it's, you know, it's, it's it, the horse gets out of the barn, and it runs everywhere. And now it's basically been disproven. There's never been any science showing that face masks are, are effic uh, effective. And... There's actually, I actually, in the process of this, came across one study that looked at a series of um, identical surgery procedures where they, everything was the same except for the patients. You had the same surgery team, and in half of the cases, the surgery team wore face diapers like normal, and then in the other half of the cases, the surgery team did not wear face diapers. Only the patients were different. And believe it or not, the cases where the surgery team wore face diapers, they had a higher level of post-operative infections 
than they did with the ones where the face where the surgery team didn't wear masks. Imagine that. So right there is proof that these things don't work. And then on top of that, I have a study right here. I believe this is it. Nope, that's not the one. Um, here it is. Study. Short-term face mask causes or use causes carbon dioxide poisoning, cognitive impairment, testicular damage, stillbirth, and impaired memory. Imagine that. And this is um, by Lance D. Johnson, April 28th. And here we go. This is from Natural News. Studies continue to show that face masks provide no protection against COVID-19. Now, or anything else for that matter, now a new peer-reviewed study out of Germany finds that short-term face mask use causes carbon dioxide poisoning, leading to testicular dysfunction in young men, increased risk of stillbirth for pregnant women, cognitive decline in children, as well as impaired memory, anxiety, and other serious health problems. Masks force a person to inhale unsafe levels, levels of COVID or carbon dioxide. Synthetic microfibers, carcinogenic compounds, volatile organic compounds, and microorganisms that have adapted to the moist environment inside the mask. The researchers warn that face masks suffocate people in their own exhaled waste. Yeah, think about it. Increasing CO2 levels in their blood while driving up blood pressure and inflammatory markers. The study, possibly uh, possible toxicity of chronic carbon dioxide exposure associated with face mask use, particularly in pregnant women, children, and adolescents, was published in the peer-reviewed journal Helion or Helion. Face masks spike CO2 blood levels, destroying childhood brain development, depleting men's sperm. Fresh air typically contains just 0.04% of CO2. When a person puts on a mask, they are exposed to low-level carbon dioxide poisoning in the range of 1.4 to 3.2%. In the study, CO2 concentrations as low as 0.3% were associated with significant brain damage, impaired memory, and increased anxiety in children. The study found that just five minutes of, wearing, of face mask wearing can expose an individual to dangerous CO2 levels, laying the groundwork for serious health issues and developmental disorders in children. In one study, 0.3% CO2 exposure on adolescent brain neurons can cause destruction of the uh, gyrus dentatus and the pre prefrontal cortex with um, decreased IGF-1 levels resulting in less activity, increased anxiety, and impaired learning and memory. The concentration of CO2 in the blood has an important influence on the intra- and extracellular pH. When CO2 passes quickly through the cell membranes, it goes from on to form carbonic acid with H2O, or water, causing the release of hydrogen, uh, positive hydrogen ions, leading to acidosis, and the die-off of neurons. Not good. When male mice are exposed to 2.5% uh, CO2 for four hours, their testicular, testicular cells and sperm are destroyed. For humans, this exposure is equal to 0.5% CO2, 
a common exposure during mask mandates. In the study, four hours of low-level CO2 exposure causes spermatid and uh, serot- uh, serotoli cells in testes to self-destruct, causing streaking and vascular uh, vacuolization of the tubular components and consequently no maturization of spermatids, or in other words, sperm. CO2 poisoning of uh, pregnant women causes birth defects, higher risk of stillbirth. Carbon dioxide exposure can cause oxidative stress and formation of lipid hydroxypyrides. Uh, wait a minute, hydroperoxides, excuse me that uh, cause DNA fragmentation and subsequent mitochondrial damage and cell death. Pregnant rats exposed to 3% CO2 were more likely to suffer stillbirths and have offspring with birth defects. This is equal to 0.8% CO2 exposure for humans, a common exposure for pregnant women who worked under mask mandates. Before widespread mask use, the stillbirth rate in humans was 7 per 1,000 births. During the masking pandemonium, stillbirths increased to 21, or three times, uh, per 1,000 births. A prominent UK hospital reported a four-fold increase in stillbirths during the COVID-19 scandal, and carbon dioxide poisoning was a major contributing factor. The damage was also observed in Australia, where people were forced to wear masks for years. This increases the, uh, the incre- these increases in stillbirth. Uh, was not observed in Sweden, where there no, were no mask mandates. Hmm, imagine that. Circumstantial evidence exists that popular mask uh, use may um, be related to current observations of a significant rise to, of 21 or 28% to 33% in stillbirths worldwide, the German researchers concluded. Forceful and coercive face mask policies continue to violate the sovereign rights of health and health of the individual, weakening their immune system and setting up their oxygen-deprived cells for oxidative damage, inflammation, and severe disease. Pregnant women and their fetuses were directly their babies were directly harmed by policies of forcing CO2 poisoning. Focusing, focused masking of children caused negative psychological effects and additional psychological damage to their brains, their immune systems, and their development. So there you have it. Don't wear face diapers. There's no scientific evidence to, you know, first off, the whole idea is based on the flawed germ theory, which has never been proven. As a matter of fact, it has been disproven over and over and over again while they try to prove it. So there's no reason whatsoever to wear a face mask. Even if you sneeze or cough directly into someone's face, they're not going to get sick. And if they do, it's not because you sneezed or coughed into their face. More than likely, it's psychosomatic. And that's the thing that people don't seem to get. You know, I, I talk about this all, no, not all the time, but, you know, I have a friend who um, has some young grandchildren and probably about six months ago now, he told me that, you know, he, he got sick. And it was after the kids came over and they were all snotty-nosed and everything. They were climbing on him, hugging him and kissing him and stuff. And he, he's thinking, oh, man, I'm going to get sick now. And sure enough, he did. 
But it wasn't because the kids were sneezing or we, you know, you know, passing anything on to him. It was that he had been re- raised his entire life to believe that germs are bad, that germs make you sick. And if you're exposed to something like that, you're going to get sick. And lo and behold, his brain made him sick. The mind is a powerful, powerful thing. And I talk all the time about, you know, there's cases where people are, are trapped inside a refrigeration car, a uh, railroad car, but the refrigeration unit's not on. But they know they're in a reefer car, and as a result, they tell themselves they're going to freeze to death. And even though the temperature in the car never drops below 50 degrees, easy, you know, there's no reason to die or freeze to death with 50 degrees. They, they freeze to death. Their minds tell them they're going to freeze, and they do. Or the guy, the, mil, you know, the soldier, who has been led to believe that if you get shot, you're going to die. Well, if you get shot in a in a important area like the heart, yeah, you will, or the head. But if you're shot in the arm, that's a survivable Ill- or wound. But there are lots of cases where people were shots in the arms and the legs, and they didn't hit arteries or anything like that. Most of the cases were through and through. But because they believed they were supposed to die if they were shot, they did. Psychosomatic is you know, caused by the mental, uh, the brain is very powerful and people die all the time as a result of believing they're supposed to die and therefore they do. And there's no doubt in my mind that that's why my friend got sick when he was exposed to these snotty nosed kids. And that's why people, if they are around folks that have, you know, allegedly have COVID, which is just a, a detox, they get the same thing or you know at the same time you know their bodies have been exposed to crap in the food water and air for a long time they've got a buildup and they're due for a detox and the thing is is when you detoxify you go through the same symptoms that people went through with covid or cold or the flu you shivers fevers uh, chills uh, nausea sometimes um, that kind of thing and then throw in 5G, and all of a sudden you have shortness of breath and that kind of thing added in. And that's what COVID is. It's not a virus. You know, the funny thing is, is so, so you know, the, the supposedly the COVID-19 was caused by the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which has never been isolated, never been separated out, so you have just the virus to look at. And oddly enough was never found in a single person allegedly suffering from COVID-19. Look it up. You will not find a single instance where the so-called SARS-CoV-2 virus was isolated from the sputum, the blood, the spit, the saliva, anything of a person who was allegedly ill with COVID-19. It's never been done, never had it. There were cases where you know, a case in, in Canada where a guy sued the, um, the government uh, because he wanted, a, wanted proof that the government had isolated the virus to prove that uh, their lockdowns were justified and all that kind of thing. And oddly enough, the case was then given, you know, switched from the government of Canada to the Queen of England because she is the, uh, well, was 
the head of the government for Canada, ultimately. And they had to default because they had no proof whatsoever that the COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 virus, A, existed, or B, had been linked to anybody with the alleged illness. And that's why you never want to take a COVID test. Because there's, you know, there were examples, uh, I forget the name, there was a president of a country in Africa. He was also a physician. And he didn't trust any of this stuff and started sending um, the COVID tests in on motor oil and papaya and monkeys and all kinds of things. Even, you know, blank tests that had never been used. They just sent a blank test in and it tested positive. That was done all over the all over the world. These tests were just totally bogus. There's no reason for it, and they were dangerous. Um, you could get sick from taking the test. You know, it was just crazy. But um, never want to take the test. Definitely don't want to take the jabs. Don't want to take any vaccines, let alone the COVID. I, the more I study, the more convinced I've become that vaccines are absolutely worthless and dangerous, if not deadly. There's not a single vaccine for anything that's ever been developed that's been worthwhile. And not a single case where supposedly, you know, you hear all this time, oh, well, this vaccine was rolled out and it got rid of smallpox or chickenpox or all this other baloney. That's all lies. It's all propaganda put out by the American Murder Association and Big Pharma so they can make more money off of you, the sheeple. Don't fall for it. So anyway, face masks, absolutely worthless. On top of that, hospitals, as we saw in the video, became death and murder facilities during COVID, the facts show. Again, natural news, and this was from, yep, Friday, April 28th. Just because COVID is over, thankfully, does not mean that the fallout from the healthcare system's egregious medical abuses will go unchecked or unpunished. Reports are flooding in about the horrors that took place in hospitals all across the country, many of which abused patients and committed systemic uh, medical murder in the name of saving lives and stopping the spread. Lawsuits are being uh, filed left and right against hospitals that allegedly murdered people's loved ones by putting them on remdesivir or a ventilator or both after using fraudulent PCR tests to proclaim a positive COVID diagnosis. And you heard the very part, the early part of the movie or video, you know, if someone tested positive and then died from injuries of a car wreck or whatever, or motorcycle accident, they were deemed to be a COVID death, which boosted the numbers. They had to raise the numbers like crazy to make it, you know, the, the story look real. But the funny thing was, those numbers went up as like a teeter-totter, but all other deaths went down. Flu disappeared for the first time in, in years, and uh, vehicle deaths and everything else, whatever they would do, the first thing that happened, if you came into an ER, you'd be tested for COVID. And, of course, they crank up the cycles on the thing so that, like uh, Carrie Mullen said, if you do it right, which means crank up the cycles, you can find anything and anyone. So every single person that came in tested positive for COVID. And then when they died of their injuries from the car wreck or the, you know, the parachute not opening or whatever, it was a COVID death. Didn't have any more people going to the funeral homes or the uh, cemeteries, but the death numbers were shifted 
from other causes like normal to COVID and COVID only. Anyway, um, rather than treat patients with nutrition and perhaps safe and effective drugs like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, the most, most medical institutions in America follow the script like they were ordered to and the pay money, you know, follow the money. Because when you put them on hydroxychloroquine and ventilators and everything else, you get paid lots and lots of extra money. And in exchange, they raked in the dough for compliance. The official American hospital uh, COVID protocol was a murder regimen. American thinkers Stella Paul wrote a piece highlighting some of the stories of, of people who lo- whose loved ones lost their lives at the hands of medical tour- uh, terrorists who isolated patients from their families while killing them with the official COVID death protocol. What a perfect system they set up. Oh, this is very contagious, so nobody is allowed to go in. No family members can be anywhere near the sick people. Wait a minute, you got medical staff going in there, and why? what's the difference? Are they super healthy? No, (laughs) they get just as sick as everybody else. But oddly enough, all those people that were working in the COVID wards, hardly any of them ever got sick from COVID. Imagine that. And it wasn't because they were wearing all the fancy gear, the little bunny suits and everything else. It was because it wasn't a contagious illness. Hmm. But they keep you know nobody's allowed around this person but the hospital individuals who are being paid to kill them there's no advocates no family members no attorneys no nobody able to be in there to see what's going on and to fight for the individual who's being you know killed on a ventilator with ivs in their arms and everything else they're generally out of it and can't speak for themselves and there's no one else to speak for them what happens they end up dying The ritual progresses uh, in predictable stages. First, the patient is isolated from family who are unable to advocate for their loved one or monitor what's happening, like I just said. Paul explains next, the patient is diagnosed with COVID-19 or COVID pneumonia, even if they came to the hospital because of a broken arm or a hangnail or visiting somebody, (laughs) which they weren't allowed to do at that point. Then, They're bullied into getting remdesivir, a highly toxic drug which killed 53% of Ebola patients who had the misfortune to take it. Next, they are placed on a BiPAP machine at a high rate, making it difficult for them to breathe. Their hands are often tied down so they can't take the BiPAP machine off their face. This progresses towards induced death, which... uh, this progression towards induced death was was the norm in American hospitals, which murdered countless patients via the COVID protocol. And it gets even worse, as Paul explains. As the patients writhe in agony, psychiatrists are brought in to diagnose them with agitation and sedate them, she says. Now, shot up with remdesivir, sedated with drugs that make it tough to breathe against the BiPAP ventilator, and strapped down in restraints, the victims are denied food and sometimes even water. Should they try to summon help, they may find the hospital plays a vicious trick on them, placing their phone and the call button for the nurse out of reach. In the final stages, they are intubated and slowly die, alone, left to rot into a skeletal corpse with bed sores. 
Is this America? Yep. As usual, with most things in the United States, the impetus behind this mass murder machine was none other than money. Not to mention the desire to kill off a lot of Americans, a.k.a. Bill Gates and his, you know, prof- pro, you know, admitted use of vaccines to lower the population. What's that say? We're going to kill people with them. <sighs> it turns out that the federal government incentivized this mass murder by sending taxpayer dollars to hospitals every time they killed another patient with COVID. The Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, or AAPS, explains it like this. Our formerly trusted medical community of hospitals and hospital-employed medical staff, speak for yourself, I never trust them, have effectively become bounty hunters for your life. None of this would have been possible without the passage of the CARES Act, which was passed in 2020 under Donald Trump apportioning $2 trillion in stimulus money to pay off hospitals to commit mass genocide. It provided gigantic bonuses to hospitals to institute federal protocols on COVID, ensuring that COVID would be massively diagnosed and treated with deadly combinations of remdesivir, ventilators, and other lethal methods, Paul writes. COVID was a psychological operation or a PSYOP, designed to tyrannize and depopulate. To learn more, visit genocide.news. Absolutely disgusting. And we fall for it time and time again. And guaranteed, whenever it is that they roll out the next pandemic. The American people and people around the world who are gullible, brain-dead, spoon-fed will fall for it again. They will don the face diapers. They will socialist distance. They'll lock down. They'll do everything we did the last time because we never learn. And that's why these guys do what they do. Because we fall for it every time. Time to wake up, people. It's going to happen again. It's just a matter of time. Let me see if I can find it here. This is going to be a toughie in the short time we have. Let's see. Um, hmm. FDA. Let me see if this will bring it up. Mm-hmm. Doesn't look like it. Yeah. Anyway, I had uh, a copy of the slideshow that was presented to the FDA in October of 2020, I think it was. It's like two months before the Operation Warp Speed bioweapon injections were rolled out. And in that slideshow on slide number 16 was listed pretty sizable list of what they knew were going to be side effects or negative effects of these jabs. Some of which had never existed before, like multiple system failures in children. (laughs) Multiple organ failure system failures in children. Something that was never diagnosed or never even mentioned in, in history prior to this. 
But they knew when they started giving it to kids, their organs were going to start shutting down all over. And they knew all kinds of, you know, myocarditis, pericarditis. You know, those were the biggies, you know, the cause in the sudden adult death syndrome now. They knew that was going to happen before they even rolled these things out. Because in the little bit of testing they had done, that's what they were seeing. And it's just absolutely unconscionable. But they were rolling these things out, knowing full well that it was going to cause death and destruction in large, large numbers, large percentages of the people that were foolish enough to take these things. I'm happy to say that I never socialist distance. I never wore a face diaper, never took the jab during any of this time. I refused to put it on, and I actually only was denied access to a couple of places. And those places will never see me or my money ever again. Had I known then what I know now, I would have taken a small claims court and made a fair, fairly sizable amount of money off of them. And I'd have kept going back because these people don't learn either. You go in, you get screwed, you take them to court, you get an award, you go back and try and go in again, and the same people will refuse to let you in again, and you take them to court again. You could, you could make a pretty good living off of that at five, ten grand a pop. But... Um, that will be in my arsenal of uh, my quiver of things to do when the next pandemic comes around, trust me. And, um, the affidavit and small claims can be your friend, trust me. And if, if, and when the next pandemic happens, I will be covering that for sure. Teaching people how to, uh, go after these uh, businesses, stores, whatever they are who deny you access because you won't wear a face diaper or socialist distance. But it'll be fun, trust me. Well, let's see here. We're just about out of time. And uh, we will be back in an, roughly an hour. Same bat time, same bat channel. Um, we'll be on Spreaker, Skype, or excuse me, Jitsi, and free conference call for my afternoon version of your DIY health. So the same area, you can, same location, you can get the afternoon show, another two hours. And um, we'll have, uh, we have a lot more people to get into the chat rooms and uh, engage in the afternoon shows. So um, some good conversation will take place and that kind of thing. But if not, we'll be back uh, Thursday morning, right here, same bat time, same bat channel again. And we'll have the second edition or the second part of the uh, uh, COVIDism uh, documentary. And then next month, next week, we'll do uh, part three and part four, Tuesday and Thursday, and wrap it up. But I think it's a very, very good um, uh, series, and I think it's well worth uh, going over. And uh, what a good time will be had by all. So... The reason I'm doing this is I just want to make sure that we don't forget. We can't, you know, and that's the thing. The American sheep will have uh, literally the attention span and memory of a goldfish. And it's too easy to forget about what has been done to us in the name of public safety and public health via these animals who are 
calling the shots and causing us to wear face diapers and take jabs and everything else. Don't fall for it. When they try it again, say no. If everybody said no, it would have been over in no time at all. So that's it for uh, today. Take care of your bodies because it's the only place you have to live. We will see you either this afternoon at 1 p.m. Eastern or on Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern. Take care and God bless.